This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, October 10th, 2022 on your public radio station KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. We begin a new week of shows with some conclusions. We'll finish up a story we started in the summer with the two makers in residence at the Scott Family Amazium. We visited with them the day they started their work, and now their exhibits are just about ready to go to the museum floor. And we'll revisit a prior center profile with Randy Dixon from earlier this year about the Buffalo River. 50th anniversary observations for the Buffalo River becoming National River concluded this weekend. The University of Arkansas Music Department begins a busy week tonight with the University Symphony and the Faulkner Performing Arts Center with a spotlight on new U of H cello professor Dr. Peko Singer. Works included in tonight's concert beginning at 7.30 include compositions from Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, and UA Symphony conductor Dr. Robert Mueller. Later this week, the UA Scola Cantorum performs choral works by Florence Price. That's Thursday night in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center. And there will be a signature jazz series event dedicated to the music of Mary Lou Williams. That's Friday night in the Global Campus Black Box Theater in downtown Fayetteville. Details for all the concerts at music.uark.edu. Let's start our show today by going into the workshop at the Amazium in Bentonville. That's the sound of last Tuesday afternoon at the Amazium. Turns out Tuesdays, the day the museum is closed to the public, are particularly active, according to Simon Muse, the senior exhibitions manager at the Scott Family Amazium. It's the day where uh, the exhibit's fabrication shop can get all the really, really noisy work done without worrying about impacting our guest experience whatsoever. Uh, we go in, take care of the stuff on the floor, and uh, make a ruckus back here uh, without disturbing the public too much. The visit last week was designed to catch up with this year's Makers in Residence, two artists who are spending a few months at the Amazium creating new exhibits. Earlier this year, I popped in on the day Dayton Castleman and Tyler Altenhofen first started. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure we will. We'll have plenty of time to... We'll have to get on the same rhythm. Altenhofen, a software engineer, and Castleman, an artist, curator, and arts educator, hadn't yet decided what they were going to work on when we visited that day. This past Tuesday, I asked Simon Muse what the summer and early autumn had been like for the 2022 Makers in Residence. Well, uh, I know the audience probably can't see, but just so you know, in the presence of two extraordinarily big boxes uh, that hide some mysterious secrets inside. Uh, they've been prototyping, building out, making scale models, and now they're in the later part of the Makers Residency and they're beginning to fabricate their final pieces. What was it like watching these two makers who are not permanent members of the staff had to kind of orient themselves to the place, but quickly then start working with each other to create something? I think it's one of those things that we have to be very intentional about what we introduced them to when. Uh, their orientation was probably really three weeks long because there were just so many things to discover and learn and do stuff. Because there's a, there's a difference between designing for uh, children and designing for adults. You have to kind of factor in how do people actually play with objects? How do you make an object that is appealing to kids but also appealing for adults? Uh, there's a fine line, you know, between having something that looks like it came from uh, like a, the toy store shelves and then something that adults feel like they can engage in with too. And uh, that's one of those things that the artist residents have to learn as part of the program. Back in the summer, both makers told me they look forward to the entire creative experience, including potential snafus and setbacks. All part of the process, they said. So, a few months later, I asked if they still felt that way. Dayton Castleman answers first. When you're trying to imagine or conceive of something that doesn't exist yet and hasn't quite existed yet, um, there is always the inevitable unknown. You, you keep crossing sort of thresholds of unknown and, and those are those points at which sometimes um, you encounter something that you weren't predicting in your brain's model or something. And, um, but that's also, I think it goes with the territory um, of art making um, and any kind, I think, prototyping uh, innovation um, comes with lots of, a couple steps forward step back. What's a hiccup 
that you know sticks with you toward the end of this process? I've had lots and lots of big bangs and kind of semi crashes going on. In my exhibit, I have lots of big motors moving, you know, a hundred-ish pounds of weight around at high speeds, and I think those have been like the most eventful ones, where people come running into the room and say, "What? What was that? Is everything okay in here? Does everyone still have all their limbs?" Um, so there's been a lot of learnings from that and just how to keep everything safe, how to make sure things have like appropriate stops. Those, those have definitely been the most eventful ones though, is, is, is the large motors moving big things around. I discovered how difficult it is to suspend a large shallow pool of water high in the air through mistakes in my own initial design. And the point at which I discovered that meant that I really had to scramble to redesign, reinforce, and come up with a solution fairly rapidly to, if I don't make that pool float in the air without spilling, then the whole thing's not gonna work. So it's kind of a do or die moment with the project. I, I think it's any project where you come to a point where I've got to learn how to make that pool of water suspend in the middle of the air. <laughs> that's one worth pursuing. Well, I'd like to think so. That's why I named it Space Puddle, because I realized the real, as much as it's supposed to create this projection on the ground and the experience of waves, um, the real uh, feet ended up just getting the puddle into space. Okay, how did you balance you mentioned the motors, you mentioned suspending water. How do you balance the actual, you know, technological workings with, oh, the people, when we come and look at it and touch it and experiment with it, we don't care how it works, we just want it to be fun and look good. How did you balance that? I think mine, so one of the things that was suggested to me about one of the core tenants of the Amazium is kind of letting people see what's happening. So I think one of the most interesting parts of my exhibit actually turned out to be the window that lets you see inside and kind of see behind the mirror, see all the cool things that are going on with the exhibit. Um, so one of my learnings was to not hide so much the mystery of everything that's going on. It's cool to see how something works. It's cool to discover um, an event and then through your kind of curiosity, figure out what's going on behind it and think about it. Um, so I think that actually turned out to be one of the more exciting parts of mine, is, is revealing what's happening behind it all. I wish I'd had that luxury. Mine involves this, you know, projector, and so I've had to take all of the interesting contraptions and electronics and all the complex wiring and all the stuff that's kind of interesting to look at and fun and just shroud it in this black uh, robe that doesn't allow you to see any of those things. You can actually, once it's suspended, above your head in the air, you'll be able to look up through the pool, um, but you'll simultaneously be, there'll be a bright light shining right down into your face you at the same time. Yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely gone on my back underneath <laughs> that thing and looked up into it. This past Tuesday, Castleman's work, Space Puddle, was suspended from the Amazium workshop ceiling, a black curtain covering all four sides. It grew out of an interest of in using the, a surf, the, the surface of water as either a reflector or as a lens. And I ended up going with the lens model where the light shines down through the shallow pool of water. And then when the water is disturbed, you can see it, it projects the waves that are formed by these drops of water that are falling into the pool. And um, when uh, it's fully installed, the um, the idea is to, it's going to be above your head, so you, it's when you enter the pool of light that you'll trigger these things and you'll see these larger waves kind of surrounding you, um, which is a tabletop science lab experiment done at large scale, basically. Well, that's cool. Can we go look at yours? Yeah, let's go look at mine. Tyler Altenhofen's creation is also a large box. It was on the floor Tuesday. It invites visitors to sit in front of it. He calls it Magic Mirror. Mine is a large, plain-looking mirror um, that is kind of mounted on a giant box. And initially, when you walk up to it, it just appears to be a mirror reflecting you. But then when you enter the right position, it applies overlays to your face using a monitor that's actually behind the mirror, which turns out to be a, a two-way mirror. 
Um, and it gives you Snapchat filters with elemental things on it. So you get like the eyebrows that look like electricity or a big bushy beard made out of leaves. Um, and then there's other fun effects that you can activate by touching various things in front of it. Um, but that's the crux of it. And then through the, through the side of it, you can actually go and you can see all the inner workings of it. So you can see the large motors moving everything around. You can see the flashing lights and how that results in um, what you see on the front. There are still a few tweaks for both makers to complete before Magic Mirror and Space Puddle are exhibited to the public. And then, well, then there's moving these large exhibits onto the floor. We've all had the apartment or the house where we got the couch into the room, then we're moving out, and it's like, how the hell did we get the couch out? Neither of these is small. How will it move from where we're standing now to where the rest of us can see it? Mine? breaks down into about a 16 inch tall stack and rolls away on a pallet. It all comes apart and collapses. Yeah, I discovered that after I kind of put everything together, I went, where is this going to be going? Who's moving this? Um, but luckily, Amazon had some very reasonably priced adjustable caster wheels. So the whole thing lifts up with just a, a foot press and goes onto caster wheels and one or two people can move it around after that without too much difficulty. Will you take something away from these months of here that will stay with you? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me has been kind of designing for a different audience than I'm traditionally um, used to working with. So. Seeing how children interact with exhibits is just a huge part of designing these things, seeing what gets people interested. Um, and I think, yeah, the biggest takeaway for me was, was this just window that lets you see everything and seeing who gets excited about this and what they kind of want to learn about, I think, is, is my biggest takeaway. Yeah, and I think that learning to depend on um, a community of people to help with problem solving uh, is important, something that while I value don't often have the occasion to do because a lot of times the art the life of the artist is fairly solitary and so but this is making in community remind me very much of um, in a college setting you know where you do have support staff and other students um, and everyone sort of shares knowledge and ideas and you just look over people's shoulders while they're doing stuff and pick up things yeah it's nice both pieces, Space Puddle and Magic Mirror, will be on the amazing floor for public inspection beginning October 22nd. This is Ozarks at Large. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 8, and noon to 6 on Sunday on the Square in Bentonville. WalmartMuseum.com for more information. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. This is Ozarks at Large. Last week, Tyson Foods announced it would be bringing 1,000 jobs to Northwest Arkansas by consolidating corporate operations in the Dakotas and Illinois and bringing those corporate employees here. Our partners, Roby Brock and Paul Gatling, with Talk Business and Politics and the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, respectively, discussed that announcement this week on the television version of Talk Business and Politics. Roby asked Paul why the Springdale-based company is making the move. Well, two things, I think. One, uh, you know, they phrased it, uh, you know, this initiative is called One Tyson, right? So there's, there's something to be said for working together in close proximity and collaboration and and sharing ideas so you're you're bringing some key decision makers in from other offices to the country to the northwest arkansas region and donnie king said in in the announcement that's where he sees a great opportunity for the company is to have several of these key decision makers working in close proximity uh, and have quick actionable ideas for for innovation that sort of thing uh the second part is i think there's also probably a, a you know financial uh element to this decision uh, right, you know, rising costs, uh, inflation, you know, Tyson's profit margins have been uh, soaring the past couple of years, and that's maybe cooled off a little bit with inflation uh, and some other factors uh, regarding uh, beef inventory and meat packers, not just Tyson Foods, but meat packers having to pay more for, for ranchers, for cattle. So I think this is maybe uh, one way to uh, negate some of those uh, 
financial concerns, uh, if you will. Maybe not concerns, but some of those financial matters uh, for the company. All right. The, uh, the jobs that they're wanting to relocate, as we've mentioned, are corporate jobs. Um, they've come from a lot of previous acquisitions that Tyson Foods uh, has made. Kind of explain a little bit of that background of some of the major acquisitions that Tyson's made that gave them those properties in the other states that they're wanting to move to uh, Arkansas. Right. So two of these, uh, mostly, most of these jobs are in Tyson's beef division and its prepared food division. And Tyson has operated, uh, by and large, the beef division out of South Dakota. They're in Dakota Dunes. And that's been the result of uh, an acquisition, uh, I think, 2001, when the company bought IBP for a little over $3 billion. Uh, and it kept those jobs there and kept the beef division there. And then in the Chicagoland area, uh, that was as a result of a uh, $6.5 billion acquisition the company made in 2014 of uh, Hillshire Farms, and there's you know several brands there, including uh, the Jimmy Dean Sausage brand, Ballpark uh, Beef or Ballpark uh, Hot Dog brand. So uh, there's a lot of jobs there, and then as a result of that uh, acquisition, Tom Hayes came onto the company and eventually became CEO for a short period. And during his tenure, uh, you know, he outsourced a lot of the company's marketing jobs uh, up to Chicago as well. So. So combined, you've got about you know 500 jobs in Illinois and those 500 jobs in South Dakota uh, that have been operating uh, uh, in those two markets uh, for the past you know going back over a couple of couple of decades. Um, so we know that these jobs are coming to Northwest Arkansas. They're white collar jobs primarily because they're at their corporate headquarters there. What's the consensus among Northwest Arkansas business leaders? I mean, obviously you. You never want to turn down a thousand corporate jobs coming to the region, but it does put some stress on workforce. It does put some stress on infrastructure. It puts some, uh, certainly some stress on the housing market. Um, kind of what's the dialogue been uh, initially? Well, um, as with anything, I guess it depends on who you ask. If it's good news or bad news, uh, you know, as you mentioned, just with those two things alone, uh, infrastructure and housing, um, you know, whether Tyson Foods made this announcement or not, those are things that are going to be challenges for Northwest Arkansas in the next three years, five years, 10 years, uh, simply because, um, you know, if you step back and look, you know, you're talking about a thousand people, maybe less than that, who choose to accept the relocation of, of Tyson Foods to come here. So uh, there's about 900 to a thousand people that move to the two county area every month anyway so uh with this phased relocation that they're calling it i'm not sure uh that you're just gonna it's it's not gonna be a major uh impact like say uh several years ago when walmart had the mandate to to have all their suppliers have an office uh in northwest arkansas that was that was a major uh region changing announcement i don't think that's the case here but yes it does it is going to continue to put just an added strain uh, on the housing on the housing market, you know, real, realtors of course are salivating at the news because they're going to have some uh, more home buyers come into the market. Uh, but yeah, it's good news for some, bad news for others. I'm thinking about uh, starting a construction business up there in Northwest Arkansas <laughs> just to build uh, homes at uh, certain different levels. There, you'd be busy. <laughs> um, all right. So also to. Um, you mentioned it, you've touched on it. There may not be some people that will take Tyson up on this opportunity to relocate to Northwest Arkansas, the folks in the Dakota and South Dakota, the folks in Chicago. Um, do you, is there a sense of how large the potential workforce is to accept some of those jobs in Northwest Arkansas from the current workforce or labor force that's there? Yeah, um, I think that's a good question. I think that's what a lot of people are uh, wondering is how many will take this, um, you know, Tyson Foods is, is presenting it as, uh, like there are no layoffs, like you, you mentioned, there's no layoffs associated with it. Your job is still available. It's just that your job is going to require you to move to Northwest Arkansas. How many people will be excited about that? Uh, probably not all of them. Uh, will it be a majority of them? I think so. Uh, but then those are jobs that uh, you would think the company still wants to maintain and still have to fill. So there may be some opportunity that this is a job creator uh, here in the region for people already here uh, that uh, have those skill sets that they're looking for, whether it's uh, marketing or, or, or any other type of, of job that's left unfilled. So I think that'll be the interesting part of this is to see how many uh, of these uh, corporate employees choose to 
come to Northwest Arkansas, which I'm sure they've all heard about is uh, one of the best places to live, work, and play through the uh, marketing efforts of, of many stakeholders. But uh, yeah, we'll see how many uh, people end up do making the move. Paul Galling and Roby Brock are with our partners, the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal and Talk Business and Politics, respectively. Their conversation took place on this weekend's television version of Talk Business and Politics. Join KUAF, the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, and the Fayetteville Public Library for the R Word book discussion series with author, speaker, and historian Jamar Tisby, who will join us virtually to speak on his book, How to Fight Racism, that was featured on The R Word, a limited series podcast from KUAF. Can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? <laughs> it's a long story. The short version is I am a black Christian who has learned the hard way about the enduring racism in some circles of white Christianity. Join in the discussion on how to fight racism Thursday, October 13th at 6.30 p.m. Go to KUAF.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Happy Monday. This past weekend, the last of the scheduled big observations of the 50th anniversary of the establishment of the Buffalo River as a national river took place in Harrison. With the conclusion of the celebration, we thought this would be a fitting time to listen again to our prior center profile about the preservation of the buffalo that first aired this spring on Ozarks at Large. There's nobody going to be more interested in the Ozarks than we are. And this was the attitude that we had in the beginning. And so I'd hope that the people in the young, young people in the future, when they float this Buffalo River, it won't be just a lark to them, but it will be a revelation of the mystery of creation and how beautiful it all can be if we don't mess it up. We're going to tell you who that is. You might already know if you've lived here a while. First, I'm going to tell you who is sitting across the desk from me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. It's Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. We're celebrating a birthday this week. 50? Yeah. And it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> or you. No, no. Those, those are in the rearview mirror, I'm afraid. Well, yeah. No, it's the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo River becoming the first national river in uh, America. And there is a name that is synonymous with that designation. Several, but one that around here we think of first. Dr. Neil Compton. Yeah. Who was a physician. Uh, He was a pediatrician, right? Yeah, yeah. But he was also uh, quite a... uh, he was a celebrated author and uh, landscape photographer, but he is credited with pretty much saving the buffalo. He started the whole movement, I guess you would say. Took the movement not just from getting people rallied here, but took it to Washington, brought a Supreme Court justice down here to canoe on the river, things like that. Right, and it actually dates back more than 50 years. It dates back to uh, 1962 when he read about uh, the the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who back then they used to say were dam happy, uh, wanted to put two hydroelectric dams on the Buffalo River. And he and some of his friends and environmental enthusiasts were very much against doing that because, of course, it would take away the beauty and cause lake formations and things along that line. So, uh, Long story short, they decided to form what's now called the Ozark Society. Still thriving. Yes. And um, the person who called the very first meeting uh, was a man by the name of Doug James, who was an ornithologist at the University of Arkansas and actually formed the first Arkansas Audubon Society. That's right. But um, this is from a 2012 interview that the Ozark Society did with him, and he talks about this first meeting. The first chapter, I organized the University of Arkansas chapter of the Ozark Society. That was the first chapter. Then, of course, it went to Missouri, Louisiana, and so forth, and, you know, several chapters in Arkansas. And I, I didn't really envision that at the beginning, but it was... I can understand that it was a logical progression. After the Ozark Society forms, they really start to work 
in an effort to keep the buffalo from being dammed. And it took about a decade yeah. for them to accomplish it. And, you know, they they started up media campaigns and courted local and national politicians. But there were a few developments that happened in the mid-60s that really helped their cause. The first was uh, Governor Orville Faubus in 1965 wrote to the Corps of Engineers and said he was not in favor of damming the buffalo. He's a Madison County native, so he grew up near the buffalo. Yes, and in the archives, we actually have footage of uh, Faubus and his wife Elizabeth skipping rocks on the banks of the buffalo. And you can see it online. We have it on social media uh, this week. Uh, Then in 1966, John Paul Hammerschmidt defeated James Trimble for the third congressional district seat. And uh, Trimble was pro-dam and Hammerschmidt was anti. So uh, this clip coming up is from a prior center interview in 2009. I thought, well, you know, a free-flowing stream, and I grew up on it, and uh, it's the last vestige of the White River that isn't dammed, and bottom line, it just makes sense to leave it that way. And uh, the the groundwork's been laid to kill the dams, with Falvis especially, and uh, they could have been revitalized, but I thought they shouldn't have been. So I just made up my own mind that that we ought to have a uh, national park. And so I began to talk with people. All right, John Paul Hammerschmidt uh, gets elected to Congress, first Republican in the 3rd District, which has never gone Democratic since. Uh, he works in D.C. to get the, the very powerful Arkansas senators at the time, Fulbright McClellan, on board. Well, and also— And Wilbur Mills, yes. Well, who holds the purse strings is uh, House Ways and Means Committee chair. Right. And so um, locally, there's also a lot of support. The tourism department and local business people. And in 1969, this is also from the KTV archives, um, Channel 7 talked to Little Rock businessman Charles Johnston, and he's talking about actually taking a group of people— up to Washington because there's a, uh, a hearing before a U.S. Senate subcommittee, and they want to be part of it. Many of the conservationists throughout the state um, are concerned about the presentation to be made before the Parks and Recreation subcommittee of the uh, Senate Interior and Insular Affairs Committee of the Senate uh, next Tuesday, uh, at which time we, uh, a group of us, are at our own expense um, going to appear in Washington uh, in support of uh, the bill introduced by Senators McClellan and Fulbright uh, to make uh, to place uh, a national park uh, on the Buffalo River here in Arkansas. And we are going to testify in favor of that. And basically our position here today with the um, Park Recreation and Travel Commission is to is to ask them uh, to support this bill that's being uh, uh, heard uh, by this subcommittee next Tuesday. Now, they did vote this afternoon to support you. Yes, they voted uh, uh, three to one with uh, two abstentions. I'm glad you include this next clip here because there's another side. Um, it wasn't just the Corps of Engineers who wanted the dam. There were people in Newton County, which was a poor, sparsely populated oh, county. I, I would guess the majority. Because they needed some economic development. Right. Yeah. So so there was local support in Newton County along the Buffalo. There was support for the dam. Yeah. And, you know, there, are, there were people that said, yeah, this pretty resource is really nice, but we we need some bucks and they were being sold on on that fact which they were being you know uh bull shoals dam mm-hmm. norfolk dam oh, they saw Greer's ferry examples yeah. that it had worked very Beaver well dam. sure yeah sure but um this is a clip from alice andrews who is uh, conservative and active in issues of, you know, environmental protection. And she talks about how some of the local residents were angry. There were people who were very unhappy because they lost land. Some of them had been there for generations. And I, 
I think everybody in the Ozark Society understood that and never wanted that to happen. But the alternative was a lake. So there was support, especially locally, for the lake. Yes. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But yeah. there's somebody else you want to talk about. Well, a, a couple that were very instrumental in in this in the saving of the buffalo, and that would be Harold and Margaret, Margaret Hedges. And they were strong advocates for saving the buffalo and, and in the Ozark Society. But they actually had bought 700 acres of land on the upper buffalo and had built their dream house in 1968. And when it became a national river, they gladly sold all of their land uh, to the forestry yeah. service. Now, they did um, have control of that land for 25 years. So, you know, they were okay with that. But um, Margaret Hedges here in, in this interview from the Ozark Society talks about some of that hostility among the locals. You could feel the hostility. They had let high school out, and they had a gang of kids that had been brainwashed to believe that if they had a dam, they'd have a place to go swimming. And they had the, the president of the senior class gave a dandy speech about how badly the people in Marshall needed this dam and what it was going to do for the economy, and my goodness, what it was going to do for the children would just be great to have this big lake they could go swimming in. By the early 70s, we still don't have a decision. Right. It's still bouncing around up in Washington, and um, people are getting a little anxious about it, uh, impatient. And even then-Governor Dale Bumpers talks about the issue at, at one of his public appearances. I feel that I have a strong responsibility to study all sides and certainly not just the economic side for the feasibility of any project. I have stated this, perhaps not to uh, as large an audience of this, I've stated this in the past, but I'd like to reiterate it. And certainly I made up my mind many months ago that I strongly favored the National River Bill for the Buffalo River, and I still do. And I sincerely hope that that bill will be enacted into law before uh, Many more days pass by. It seems to me that the thing, for reasons unknown to me, uh, just never seems to get through. I don't know of anybody much that opposes it. And I certainly hope, for the benefit of all of us, and certainly for the benefit of our environment, that that will come to pass. Dale Bumpers from 1971? Yes. All right, talking about the buffalo. Uh, let's go full circle now back to Dr. Neil Compton. Right, and this is that 1992 interview and I, I love this. He sort of just sums up uh, in about 45 seconds um, how this whole saving of the buffalo came about. We never did meet with anybody who has been over here and seen this marvelous scenery that wasn't thrilled at the outcome. Of course, in the beginning, we had no idea that we'd be victorious. It was almost impossible. The Corps of Engineers were such a powerful organization that uh, we knew we couldn't beat them. We, we didn't know just how it would turn out. But political events conspired to be in our favor. In other words, our big damn building congressman was defeated by John Paul Hammersmith, who came out for the bill. Congressman, I mean, uh, Senator Fulbright was for the bill. All the other Arkansas legislators fell in with it. And the bill was passed and signed uh, for a national park or a national river on the Buffalo in 1972. President Nixon. You can see how this effort worked. I mean, the Buffalo River is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. It's still there, and that's wonderful. Oh, and I remember as a kid. Uh, Field trips? Well, no, my father used to take uh, my brother and I there, and this was before it was um, a national river. And I, I have a photograph uh, holding a tiny little fish, but I was about five or six, and it was the first fish I'd ever caught, and I caught it on the Buffalo River. I think I had six or seven straight years of school where our field trip, back then you took field trips, you know, in yeah. April or May, we would spend the morning at Dog Patch, and then we would spend the afternoon along the Buffalo River. Oh, you had it lucky. See, we couldn't come up from Little Rock. It was too long of a drive. Yeah, but you had all sorts of things. You had a zoo or something. We didn't have the buffalo and dog patch. <laughs> Shoot. I'd have traded that for anything yeah. in Little Rock. We were, we, we 
knew what we had. We liked it. Yeah. Um, so that's one legacy. There's the Peel Compton Foundation in Bentonville. It's kind of another legacy. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, it's a nonprofit. It's in Bentonville. And it has the original Compton home. It's, it's beautiful. I've been up there a few times. And uh, their mission actually says that they connect the community through nature, education, recreation, and preservation. And, you know, because of their obvious connection with mm-hmm. Neil Compton, they're celebrating this 50th anniversary of the Buffalo River with all kinds of things uh, going on at Peel Compton. And so I got on the phone with their uh, director of development, Jennifer Martinez-Belt, and she told me a few things about what's coming up this month. The Compton Gardens and Arboretum is actually the home of late Dr. Neil Compton, and he was known as the man who saved the buffalo. So with celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo River, Compton Gardens um, is doing quite a bit um, to celebrate and recognize this huge achievement for our state. So what are some of the things you're doing? So along our Greenway, we have our local artist, Brandon Bullitt, putting together what we're calling Buffalo River Float. And it's really a commemorative mural on part of the Razorback Greenway right outside of Compton Gardens. And it's really inspired by all the natural elements that you'd find along the Buffalo River. So if you don't get a chance to make it to the Buffalo River in March, um, you know, come and come and visit the mural. The the man behind Saving the River, Dr. Neil Compton, right outside of his Lake family home, you're able to see this awesome mural. We're also having a documentary screening on Saturday, March 19th, First River on how Arkansas saved a national treasure. This is a new um, premiere viewing of, um, you know, what happened in 1972, and we just can't wait to share that with the community. We'll have local native tree and plant programming on March 5th and 12th, and then our famous native tree and plant sale, which everyone loves. You can get a variety of trees and plants March 28th through April 1st. So lots of programming, Randy, lots of fun. We just can't wait to get everyone out to Compton Gardens. All right. Any final thoughts about this uh Noting this anniversary? Well, I found this interview from 2012 uh, with uh, Hubert Ferguson, who was very involved with the Ozark Society. And he sort of talks about the importance of conservation. Conservationists don't worship the earth, but, but we do treasure it and work for it, towards it. preservation and conservation. And only through education are we going to get it done. All right, the 50th anniversary, which uh, is just taking place, of the of the, the official uh, certification of the Buffalo National River. That's they, right. Yeah. I can't wait to get back over there. It's a beautiful country. But could we close out with one little thing? Oh, I found it's yes. a gem, too. Yes. It's wonderful. It's actually Dr. Neil Compton. This is in 1992. Shot on film on the banks of the Buffalo River, and he sits, and he just sings a little folk song. All right. We're going to listen to that. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Put Pryor Center into a, into a search engine. You'll find all of this and much more. Randy, thank you. See you next week. There was an old man at the foot of the hill. If he ain't moved away, he's living there still singing. Hi, diddle-i, diddle-i, fi, diddle-i, diddle-i, day. Oh, the devil, he come to his house one day, and he said, one of your family I'm going to take away. Sing hi, diddle-i, diddle-i, fi, diddle-i, diddle-i, day. Take her on, take her on, with the joy of my heart, and hope by golly that you never part. Sing hi, diddle-i, diddle-i, fi, diddle-i, diddle-i, day. So the devil put the old woman in a sack, and the old man said, don't you bring her back. Sing hi, diddle-i, diddle-i, fi, diddle-i, diddle-i, day. When he got her down the gates of hell, he said, punch up the fire, boys, we'll scorch her well. Sing hi, diddle-i, diddle-i, fi, diddle-i, diddle-i, day. Another little devil went a-dragging the chain. She went up with a hatchet and splits out his brain. Sing hi, diddle-i, diddle-i, fi, diddle-i, diddle-i, day. That Prior Center Profile with Randy Dixon first aired this spring on Ozarks at Large. 
Kartik Balachandran, an associate professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Arkansas, says microphysiological systems, or organs on chips, are revolutionizing the study of human health and disease. Organ on chip systems are an upgrade from your regular two-dimensional cell culture systems that are quite commonly used by medical research. And what it does is it tries to recapitulate the three-dimensionality, the different cell types, all the different matrix proteins and other components that exist in organs to try and create a more complex model that one can use on the laboratory bench. These microphysiological systems mirror the heart valve, nasal airway passage, and the blood-brain barrier, allowing researchers to test directly on human tissue and cells without endangering people. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast of the University of Arkansas. Listen at KUAF.com, ArkansasResearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. We continue to lean into the Halloween month on today's show. The Arkansas Cinema Society is hosting another horror movie double feature this week at Mount Sequoia. Again, the films are Arkansas-made originals. Last week, we invited Cody Ford with the Arkansas Cinema Society and guest back to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk about the movies. One, Ghost of the Ozarks. The other, the locally filmed short called Flight. Ghost of Ozarks was the first film to shoot post-COVID with the Screen Actors Guild approval, and that was summer of 2020, and they were up there in Truman, Arkansas. They had built a whole—it's a period piece set after the Civil War in the Ozarks, and so they had like built this whole town out there. Jordan Wayne Long, who is the co-director and co-writer on it, and I mean he and his dad and a few other people—they were just out there building, you know, out this bar and this—you know, like they've got saloons, they've got stores, they've got all this, and it's still there up in Truman. And they did everything they could to kind of give it an Ozarks vibe and all that, and so it's it's a very cool story, and we got to do a premiere in Jonesboro. It hadn't been screened there since it came out earlier this year. And so Jordan and uh, Tara Perry, who is his co-writer on the film and his wife, they flew in and you know, we just had a sold out crowd up there in Jonesboro. And like so many, it was such a community involved film. So many people came out to it. And afterwards I was like, man, could we screen this up in Fayetteville? This was just such a fun night. And they're like, yeah, we'd love it. So yeah, we're going to be screening that. You know, Jordan and Tara aren't going to get to make it, but we do have a um, filmmaker from right up here in Fayetteville, Tyler Horn, who's coming. And I got to see Tyler's short film Flight back during the Rogers Film Festival, and I was really impressed with it. I thought it was just a great take on a ghost story. And so very excited to have Tyler being a part of this. Well, Tyler is actually a part of our conversation right now. Tyler, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about Flight. It's a short film. Yes. Uh, How did it come together? Well, um, we started pitching around the idea of well, I'll start from the beginning. I went to UCA uh, and have a degree in digital filmmaking, a uh, bachelor's degree, and um, made some short films, worked on some short films in Little Rock, Conway area. Um, moved up here in 2011 and kind of drifted away from the filmmaking community, but still kept in touch with a lot of filmmakers. Uh, would go down to Little Rock and hang out with them, and we would always talk about when are we going to shoot another movie, when are we going to get together again, and uh, it always came down to, well, who's got the script? Where's the script? You know, uh, you have helps. to have the script. Yes. Uh, and so I finally got to the point where I was just like, you know what? I'm going to write the script. Um, wrote it at the beginning of 2020 um, and then started looking for locations. We needed a basement. Um, by the way, everyone was in. I called everyone. We got the band back together. Everyone was like, yes, whatever I can do to help. Um, I know some actors, my twin brother's in it. He's an actor. Um, no, uh, I did not know the, uh, August McKenna who plays, uh, Sam in the film, the, the kid, um, had to go through a little bit of a casting process to find him, but, uh, he was he's great. great. Yeah. I mean, he was knocked it out of the park. That's actually the first movie he's ever been in, but he's done some theater stuff, some stage stuff. Um, but once we found the basement, I knew that it was going to be real. Uh, a friend of a friend had has a house, was renting a house who had a basement that was just creepy enough. Uh, it looked just like it did in my head, you know, which rarely happens. We had to, you know, dress it up a little bit. But once we found that, I was like, okay, let's do it. Got everyone on board, set a date, and we shot it in two, three weekends. I don't want to give anything away, especially since it's a short film. Don't want to mm-hmm. give anything away. But it is sort of a ghost story. Yes. It's a... 
I think it follows that, oh, I wouldn't go in there sort yeah. of thing. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's what basements <laughs> – I still feel that way about basements. <laughs> I think that's where that came about was I was in between waking and sleeping, you know, how you have weird images that just pop in your head. And I just had the image that's the poster of a kid at the top of a stairs silhouetted, and there's something ominous going down, you know, in the basement. What would you use to shoot it? Because it's a beautiful film. Uh, thanks. Uh, actually, uh, that was a main factor into speeding along uh, the process of it. Uh, it was a uh, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 4K. <laughs> it's a mouthful, but uh, it's uh, by Blackmagic Designs. It's very affordable, um, and it has just beautiful uh, sensor on it. That uh, It's a crop sensor, but it shoots in 4K, and it's just I really liked uh, the scales that it was showing. It just looks way better than what we used to shoot on back when I was in college. And it was very affordable. It's a piece of equipment that's designed to shoot film. It is. It's not a phone. No, it is a cinema camera. Um, I won't go into (laughs) the phone versus camera debate right now, but yeah. So when you're after a short film that you want to evoke creepiness and register with those of us who don't want to go into a basement, Mm -hmm. it's one thing to have that vision in your head. How, Mm -hmm. How do you make sure you get that on the screen? Man, that's the toughest thing about being a filmmaker is putting what's in your head onto screen and making sure that or trying to at least evoke the same emotion in an audience member. Um, There's a lot of ways to build tension with score, um, with composition, uh, with camera movements, uh, sound Sound. design, especially. The creak Um, of a stair. Yeah. (laughs) The creak of a door opening. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Or just, you know when you're scared, your senses open up. And so we tried to play around with the sound design a lot and there's a lot of quiet moments, but there's something off about it, you know? And, um, Jason Toller who lives in Portland, Oregon, he's my wife's brother. He did the score. Uh, he's a musician. He has a basement studio. Um, I thought he did an amazing job just sort of creating that tense atmosphere. Cody, I know Arkansas Cinema Society is about bringing films and screening films for those of us made by people who are from here. But it's also about encouraging people to be like Tyler and make films. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at ACS, we have the tenets of watch, learn, make. So you know, we're putting films out there for people to see because that is one of the big things. If you can see someone do it that is you know connected to your community or your state or came from like you know I went to UCA just like Tyler did. I mean, I'm a little bit older, but yeah, it's like seeing those people who have done it. Then it's it's going to inspire other people to want to do it. Pe- filmmakers of all ages. I mean, that's the thing we always we love. You know working with youth and everything, but we also like to have workshops with, you know, adults, you know, people who are even out of college or in college. And like, we're going to be doing that at Filmland November 3rd through 6th. We'll be having some really great workshops down there. But yeah, it's just one of those things. We like showing Arkansas films so people know that filmmaking happens in this state. And, you know, maybe we can have, you know, a filmmaker just like we're doing with Tyler, have him there to talk to people. Tyler, are you working on anything right now? Uh, Yes, we're actually finishing up on our second uh, short film. Uh, we're in the mix right now, which means we've finished the score. We've we're kind of mixing all of the uh, the sound. We'll color grade it, put titles on it, and it'll be finished. And then we start shooting next Saturday on the third uh, short film, all horror movies. <laughs> Why do you like horror movies so much? Um, you know, there's there's something about horror movies that you can get away with. The suspension of disbelief, I feel like, in audiences is much higher with horror films. They also have a, a great way of saying things. They say things that we all go through um, in a different way, in sort of a way that we're all afraid to, you know, look at. And I think that they bring out a lot of, uh, sorry, they bring out a lot of, uh, of 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 issues that you probably need to work on in yourself, or you know, problems you see with society, or problems you see in friends. They bring them out in a way that you normally don't talk about, and I think that that's helpful. Tyler Horn is the filmmaker who created the short movie Flight. Cody Ford is with the Arkansas Cinema Society. The screenings of Flight and Ghost of the Ozarks scheduled to take place Wednesday night in Bailey Hall on Mount Sequoia. Presentation is in conjunction with Nightmare on Block Street. Doors set to open at 6.30 Wednesday night. Show scheduled to begin at 7. There will be a Q&A with Tyler Horn after the movies. If you'd like more details, you can go to the Facebook page for Arkansas Cinema Society. 
And on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, we'll have an excerpt from the latest episode of our podcast, Natural Election. Don't think that a special session is actually special because it happens all the time. (laughs) That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 on 91.3 KUAF, also part of the Ozarks at Large podcast tomorrow. That's available wherever you already get podcasts. And oh, by the way, the full Natural Election brand new episode, also available as a podcast wherever you already get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, this is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. Did you know KUAF sends three email newsletters sharing everything that's going on at your public radio station to a list of 8,000 people each week? And did you know that we have more than 3,000 daily listeners to our online streams? You can reach all of that audience with digital ads on our website and newsletters. To learn more about digital ads on KUAF, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Time to make somebody or some buddies very happy. Lee Wood, our general manager at KUAF, will help us do that. Hello, Lee. Hi, Kyle. What are we going to give away? We're going to give away two tickets to uh, the Black Keys, who are performing along with Band of Horses and the Velveteers Mm -hmm. this Thursday night at the Amp. It's called the Dropout Boogie Tour. That's it, right there. All right. And we've got a lucky person who's got two tickets, and that is Maura Miller of Fayetteville. So Maura and someone Maura chooses yes. will go to the Black Keys and the Band of Horses. That's right. And who else? Um, the Velveteers. The Velveteers, all yeah. right. At the Walmart Amp in Rogers Thursday night. That's right. So Maura, we'll get in touch with you and let you know uh, how you can get those tickets. And thanks so much for entering. Lee, thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Kyle. The Bella Vista Public Library is getting into the Halloween spirit with both adults and children in mind this fall. The adults will be able to hear Bill Ott discuss his 23-year career as marketing director at the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. His talk, which takes place Monday, October 17th, a week from today at 5.30, will cover the hotel's history, its claim as the country's most haunted hotel, and the paranormal paranormal experiences Bill saw during his time there. Then younger patrons of the Bella Vista Public Library can get treats and not get scared Saturday, October 29th from noon until 2 during the annual Street Treat event at the library. Candy and carnival games will be spread across the garden, the parking lot, the community room. Street Treat is free, open to the public, and intended for all ages. And the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust will award the first Arkansas Conservation Award to Frank Sharp. A press release describes Sharp, a longtime Fayetteville resident, as a tireless supporter of the natural beauty of the region. The award will be presented during the Trust's acre-by-acre fundraiser taking place at the Ozark Mountain Smokehouse at 1725 Smokehouse Trail in Fayetteville, Tuesday night, October 27th. It'll be from 6 until 9 that night. More information about the award, the organization, and the fundraiser can all be found at nwalandtrust.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lincoln. KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas at 91.3 KUAF. Contributors to our program this Monday included Roby Brock, Paul Gatling, Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History, and we also thank Lee Wood for coming by and giving away those Black Key tickets to the concert later this week at the Walmart Amp in Rogers. Jasper Logan is the Community Engagement Chief Officer here at KUAF. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. I produce today's show inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. We're back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a brand new edition of our program. You can always keep up with us through Facebook or by going to OzarksAtLarge.com. I'm Kyle Kellums. Have a great rest of your Monday. We'll talk again very soon.